be seated. Well, I'm curious how many of you um, went to bed happy last night. I was informed this morning there's still basketball being played. I was watching a soccer game last night, but um, Sporting lost 1-0 in case anybody cares. But um, yeah, I, uh, it's, it's funny. I, when football season is over, I turn off my live TV because, you know, like I've told you, I'm from Oklahoma. We don't acknowledge that college basketball exists. And so I didn't get to watch any of the KU game, but my neighbors who are huge KU fans, we can actually like see into their house. Like it's not creepy at all, trust me, but we can see directly into their house. Our house is one of those, you know, that from the front is two stories, but the back, the, the basement walks out. So our main level's on like the second floor at the back, and we can see down into their windows, um, which, you know, normally we're just waving at their, their one-year-old through the window. But he had a, a bunch of people over watching the game, and he was texting with me because I was outside grilling. Um, you know, we're like 15 feet apart through a piece of glass, but we're texting because that's what we do in 2022. And um, <clears throat> he uh, texted me the score, and they were big. And then I glanced down later, and his posture's changed. He's leaning forward, and he's scratching his chin. And I check, and now it's a 12-point game. And then he's rubbing his hands, and I check, and it's an 8-point game. And then he's pacing. And I'm like, man, this is getting bad. Like, I could just tell by his posture. And, and so then I told him, like, I'm not going to watch the game Monday. I'll just watch you, and I'll know what happened by, by watching, watching through the window. So uh, I can judge because I am the exact same way when an OU football game is on. Um, or when a Chiefs game is on, I'm pretty much the exact same way. So you can, you can judge me for that all you want. I, I, I can handle that. I was thinking this week, as we were uh, as preparing for this sermon, was thinking about what makes our kind of day and time so unique. You know, we think about this here in the year 2022. Uh, not to say that we are necessarily any different than the people who have ever lived or existed, but we share something today that has never really existed outside of the last you know, decade or so. We have the ability right now to communicate with somebody anywhere on the planet in real time for nothing. Like As long as you've got some sort of internet connection or cell phone connection, that's all it takes. And somebody else could have the same connection on the other side of the globe and through something like Facebook Messenger can communicate in real time. You think about that even when, you know, like I was a kid, I'm just old enough to, to remember as a kid, you know, long distance phone calls were a thing. And uh, we had, you know, the, like the cable boxes on top of your TV because your TV wasn't cable ready. Like I, I'm, I'm from the, the 80s and early 90s when we had this type of stuff. And we think about where we've come in the last you know, couple of decades with this. And how it wasn't that long ago into history that to communicate with anybody required a written letter that was mailed or sometimes sent by a different type of courier. In fact, I, when I was in college, I took a class on the history of the American Revolution, like at that 40 to 50 year span covering the American Revolution. And they talked about in the class how it took two months from correspondence to go from Great Britain to the colonies. And so for somebody to communicate back and forth, it would, you, you would write a letter, it would take two months to get there, two months to get back, so it's four months since you have heard the response. So just think about this, if, if your spouse was on the other side, for, for example, you would communicate, each of you would say something three times in an entire year. Some of you husbands are like, that sounds amazing. 
And some of you wives are throwing elbows right now. And it's just, this is always fun from my perspective when I make you uncomfortable with that kind of joke to see the, the reactions I get. But we think about this because letters have always been a pivotal part of how we communicate with one another. Uh, when I got to Oregon, we would about once a month get a letter in the mail from this lady at our home church in Oklahoma. And it was usually about four or five pages that would just be telling us what was going on in her life, telling us how she's praying for us. Uh, it was always a sweet letter that I looked forward to reading, and I'd, I'd stash them away in my, my, off, uh, my, my desk. But letters have always been a way that we've communicated with one another. And um, we, we even see letters back in, in the Bible times, that that's how communication was given. Is that me? What's, what's the... Okay, we'll just roll with it. Um, I'm not sure what I should do. <laughs> we'll just we'll, we'll roll with it. We'll, we'll just keep going. We've been in this series the last few weeks, uh, last several weeks actually called Check It Out, where we are working our way through the themes of the Bible. We're almost to the end of this. We're going to wrap this up on Easter, but we've gone really since the beginning of the Bible all the way through. In the last few weeks, we've been in the New Testament looking at how the New Testament has progressed. And the New Testament really is broken down into four categories. You've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus. You've got the book of Acts that follows the Gospels and tells the story of the church. And then as we're going to look at next week, you've got Revelation, that's this apocalyptic look at both the past and the future and, and God's ultimate plan for us. And in the middle is really what is the majority of the New Testament. It's letters. 21 letters written by five or six or seven different people, written to over a dozen different groups or churches or individuals, uh, addressing a variety of topics. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> I need a podium now because I can't one-hand all this stuff. You see, uh, a lot of younger preachers like to use a handheld mic. I am not one of them. I... I use my hands. There's a reason I don't click my way through my slides like Brad does. I use my hands too much, so <laughs> bear with me here. But these letters are addressed to a variety of, of people. They cover a variety of topics, and, and we see kind of how these play out. We see topics like church unity in the Corinthians letters. We see uh, topics like encouraging believers in Philippians or uh, talking about the righteousness of God in Romans or, or uh, how, to, how to train leaders and qualifications for, for church leadership in the letters to Timothy and Titus. We, we see all these different themes play out throughout all of these epistles. And despite the fact they have various audiences and various themes, ultimately they all kind of share one big overarching theme through all of it. They tell us, ultimately, that it's all about Jesus. Like, whatever the theme is, ultimately, the epistle writers tell us a simple message, everything is about Jesus. In other words, they're going to tell us that Jesus is greater than everything. He's greater than everything else, and therefore, we should keep Jesus as our priority. We should keep Jesus at the front and at the top of everything that we do. And the problem with this is, too often, we want to put Jesus on a pedestal, which we should, but occasionally we want to put something else up there too. And you can't take Jesus off the pedestal without putting something else there, and vice versa. You can't put anything else on that pedestal without removing him in the process. The writers want you to know that it's ultimately all about him. It's all about Jesus. 
The writer of Hebrews does this perhaps more than any of the others because Hebrews is a letter all about the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus. Like the writer compares him to everything, to the, to, to the angels, to Moses, to the heroes of the Old Testament, to the, the, the other faiths, everything that could be compared to him. Jesus is, is, is compared there. And over and over he mentions how Jesus is greater than all of these people or things. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews starts it off this way when he writes his letter. Hebrews chapter 1, he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And, and we see that because that really relates back to what the gospel writers say about Jesus. Like John chapter 1, we talked about a few weeks ago that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that everything was created through Him. This is kind of the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is telling us here. And he tells us because of this, He should have all of our attention. A couple of chapters later, He says in chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. See, there are so many times in these letters, so many times where we read one of these, and, and we see that these letters were addressed to specific people or churches or groups at a specific time addressing a specific need, and we read that. But as we read these, we, we, we see how relevant that was at the time, but we can also see how relevant and true they still are today. We can see how these themes and these, these messages in these letters really apply to us today just as much as they did 2,000 years ago. And it kind of made me wonder this week if the, the, the writers of the New Testament were to come back and write a, a letter, an epistle to our American church, what would it look like and what would it say today? And I think we already know the answer to that because I think it would look an awful lot like what we already read in the New Testament. In fact, I think the theme of that might be what we see here in 2 Timothy from the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy verse 4, he says this, that, that he says, As for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. That's the command he gives to Timothy. One of the very last things that he writes before he goes to the execution is, is this right here. And I think a, a letter to our American church today would be wrapped in that same that same message. He says to exercise self-control there. He's talking specifically about moral alertness, knowing what to do and knowing what not to do, knowing how to stick to the gospel, how to stick to what you were taught. See, Paul is addressing this to Timothy, who's his protege. Timothy is going to lead the churches that Paul started. And again, Paul, it's believed this is written just a matter of days or weeks before he goes to, to, to meet the execution that he's going to get at the hands of Rome. And so he gives these words to Timothy, and he's telling him how to lead the church, but also, too, how to, how to teach the church to, to function, how to cheat, teach the church to, to, to go and follow the mission that it was given. And, and again, I think that this is still so very true for us today. Last week, Brad talked about us being a church that is a community of believers, and specifically one that goes into its world, one that goes into its its community and makes an impact and an imprint for the kingdom. And if we want to be that kind of church, if we want to be a church that is all about Jesus, and let me be clear, I only want to be a part of a church that is all about Jesus. I don't want to be a part of any church that's not. If that's the case, then we need to follow the same blueprint. And although there are so many different 
themes within the New Testament. I want to highlight three commands that we're given in these epistles that are just as relevant and just as true for us today as they were when they were written 2,000 years ago to their specific audiences. Here's the first one that, that we need to follow. It's that we need to keep sound doctrine. We need to keep sound doctrine. Uh, Paul, in, in this, this letter to Timothy, when he tells him that command in verse 5, you go back two verses and there's probably a little more well-known verse or a couple of verses that, that Paul writes here. He says in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. I mean, if you didn't know any better, it would kind of sound like this was written to us today. Like this just fits us today. And every time I read this, I just kind of laugh and think he had us in mind when he wrote this. If you know history, you know that this, this command has been needed time and time again in almost every church and almost every culture over and over and over. And really what Paul says here, we, we can kind of look at, at some of the highlights of this particular passage. He says that we need to tolerate sound, uh, sound doctrine. That literally translates to healthy doctrine. In other words, it's doctrine, it's, it's teaching that aligns with the gospel message and with the holiness of God. Too often we kind of take that in one of two directions. We, we think about the gospel of Christ and, and all we look at is the compassion of Christ and we get over here and it's, it's that kind of anything goes mentality or we look at holiness and we get over here and think, no, we have to do it this way and be holy. We can't get too far one side or the other. Wrapped too much in compassion or too much in legalism, there's a balance that has to be, to be walked there. And so healthy teaching finds that balance and it aligns with both the gospel and holiness. But he also mentions itching ears. He says that they'll have an itch to hear what they want to hear. This means that people are going to listen to whatever entertains them. They're going to listen to what piques their curiosity. And we're seeing more and more in our culture, they're going to listen to what feels good, to what sounds good. See, I think too often right now in our world, this is where we have, have found ourselves is that our church, our, our American church, has found itself in a position where we cherry-pick the gospel. We cherry-pick the Bible to what we want to hear from it. And if we don't cherry-pick it, we twist it to fit what we want to hear and how we want to hear it. And that's what Paul is warning against here. And I think what we do with this is we, we make ourselves and we make each other the main character of the story here. And too often we confuse who it is and what it is that we worship. Now hear me on this. Hear my heart on this. Too often we replace God with each other. And we start looking at this idea of what we might call human rights. Now again, hear me. I, I, I love that we love each other. I love that we want to take care of each other. That's necessary. We should do that. We absolutely should try to make sure that each other is, is healthy and taken care of and safe. But I told you this a couple of weeks ago, talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. And I said, I love you all, but there's no chance I can sacrifice my son for any of you all. I, don't, I mean, I love you all, but my love isn't that strong that I can sacrifice my, my son for you all. And maybe I could sacrifice myself for you, but there's one thing I can guarantee you that I can't do. If I were to sacrifice myself for you, I can't come back from the dead for you. 
I'm not walking out of that tomb a couple of days later. And my sacrifice, while it might help you, it's not going to save you. My blood isn't going to save you. It's not going to wash your sins away. We have somebody who has done that. And we have to be careful when we start elevating each other and ourselves to the level reserved for God and for Christ. Because what's happened too often when we, we, we search for what we want to hear in the Bible is that we replace God and suddenly we start worshiping at the altar of mankind. We start worshiping each other. We start worshiping humanity as a whole. And there are too many preachers and churches out there today that are more than willing to be what Paul described here, those teachers that people will seek out because they're going to say what they want to hear. We've got to be careful with this. And just so we're clear on this, I'm not talking specifically about one or two areas that many of you all might be thinking about. We can, we can make a laundry list of types of lifestyles that all of us can fall into. And then if we're very honest, probably many of us have, and we've twisted and justified Scripture to fit those throughout the course of our lives. We've got to be careful as Christians, as a church, to stay true to the doctrine. Because Paul goes on from this, talking about these particular people who are going to hear what they want to hear. He says in verse 4, they will turn away from hearing the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. The idea of turning away is a deliberate refusal to hear the truth. It's the idea that either you just flat decide you don't want to hear what the Bible has to say, or you decide beforehand what it is going to say. And again, that's something that all of us, all of us, are guilty of at least in some degree, in some area, at some point in our lives. And if we're not careful with this, folks, if we're not careful, we're going to get ourselves off track. And if we reject the truth enough, the Bible is very clear, God will let us go. Romans chapter 1 says that, that, that multiple times they traded the truth about God for a lie. So what did he do? He gave them over to their sinful desires. And they were lost. And they were lost in their lostness. It's kind of like being in a dark room that's completely black and you don't know where the door is. And you try to figure out how to get out of there all by yourself. You're just as likely to get more lost and deeper into the darkness as you are to find the door to get out of there. That's what happens when we reject the truth and we, we, we quit listening to it. And the idea behind this isn't just that we're perpetually lost in our sin. What happens with this is as the church, when we do this, as a church, we begin to lose influence. And folks, we are seeing this happen right now in our world. In our nation's history, for the first time in the history of our nation, the majority of Americans do not identify as being regular church-attending Christians, meaning they don't attend at all outside maybe of Easter and Christmas. And those who call themselves regular church-attending Christians, the stats show come less than twice a month, about one to one and a half times a month. That's who calls themselves regular, devoted followers of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, don't reject the truth. Don't reject what God is, is, is telling us through the writers of Scripture. Because when you do that, sometimes, yes, you're going to get yourself lost, but this passage is also referring to those who kind of get misled and, and get led astray unintentionally, and they, they get unintentionally lost. 
And that may seem innocent on our parts, but what actually happens there is we get led astray because we lose sight of focusing on God and focusing on the truth. Something that I want, to he- I want you to hear me say as, as I stand here today as, as the associate teaching pastor here at Crossroads and, and one of these days to be the senior pastor at Crossroads, I want you to hear this from me every single time I'm standing here, whether it's here preaching whether it's on a short little video that goes on Facebook or whether it's teaching in a class like I do on Monday nights down the hall. Every time I am here in front of you all, to the absolute best of the ability that God has given me, the absolute best to the heart that God has given me, what I'm going to preach to you is what I believe the truth of Scripture to be. And there are going to be times we preach it. And going to be times you'll hear me say, I wish we didn't have to talk about this today. <laughs> You know, I don't like to talk about some of the stuff where it talks about being just so super sacrificial. That's not fun, but it's there, and we're called to it. And so I'm not going to sugarcoat things for you. We're just going to say what the Bible says, and we're going to say it in love, but that's the the promise you're going to get from me. But understand this too. I'm human. I'm flawed. And sometimes, no matter how well prepared I am and how, how well I've scripted out a sermon, the words fall out of my mouth the wrong way. Everyone who's preached has done this. They come out of my mouth in a way that I didn't intend for them to. Or maybe I just missed. Maybe I just kind of missed what it was I was trying to, to convey to you all. I'm human. So my promise to you is that I'm going to give you the truth of Scripture. But that comes with a challenge to you all. Prove it to me. Or, 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 or sh- sh- get in your words so that, that, you, that you, know, you don't have to just take my word for it. That you can prove it to yourself what the, the truth of Scripture is. Stay in your word on a regular basis. Be involved in a small group that studies the word. Be involved in a prayer group. Be surrounded by people who are going to help you to see the truth of Scripture. Because I can tell you this, the absolute worst thing for me that I could ever imagine having to deal with is one of these days when I'm being held accountable for everything I've done in ministry is being shown a list of the people that I led astray because I wasn't preaching good doctrine. And because you all believed it, and I led you all in the wrong direction. That to me is like the worst thing I could imagine happening, is knowing how many souls might have missed out because of, uh, of my negligence. So we're going to practice sound doctrine here. That's something that we'll never get wavered on. And, and I want you to, to kind of understand this too. Because that can happen so easily being led astray. Paul wrote an entire letter to a church in Galatia because they were being led astray. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6, right after his introduction, Paul jumps right into it. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. What he's telling them, over and over, is keep Jesus as your priority. Keep Jesus at the top here. In fact, I'd say it like this. The moment we take our eyes off of Jesus is the moment you start to get lost in the storm. If you quit looking at Jesus and you don't look to him and you strictly just look to somebody else, you're going to get thrown off. And, And here's the thing, folks. When it boils down to it, it's on us. Even if we're unintentionally led astray, it's on us. We need to be focused on Jesus. So keep the doctrine sound. Keep it healthy. Keep it focused where it's supposed to be. 
Here's our second command that we're, we're given, that we're going to follow and, and stay, true, true, uh, stay true to, is to endure hardships. And I kind of hit on this a moment ago because, like I said, this is one of those topics that is not fun to preach on and not fun to listen to. Like if I just got up here and said, next week, be here, we're going to talk about suffering. Like who can't wait to be here? Like, like who's going to camp out outside the church so you get a good seat to be here for that? Like I'll, I'll catch that one online. <laughs> but we're called to endure suffering. And not only are we called to endure suffering, we're called to do it with a smile on our face. The brother of Jesus wrote a letter in the New Testament, and he starts it off, his second verse says this, James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, dear brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't just say, hey, endure these. He says, consider it joy. And I think about that because I'm like, man, what sort of like sick, twisted person would write this and put it in the Bible? But there it is. And again, I like to look at how he, he phrases this. Because these trials that he talks about, he says here the trials that you face. The Greek word that's used there is the word peripipso. And this suggests like an unwanted or unwelcomed trial. This isn't like a trial that you seek out and get yourself in trouble with. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those types of, of hardships that are going to find us, that always find us. He says, consider it pure joy when you face those. This is the same Greek word. It's only used three times in the New Testament. One of the others is by Jesus when he's describing the man who was ambushed and left for dead that the good Samaritan came and helped. The man wasn't looking for a fight. It found him. And they left him for dead. That's the type of trial that he's talking about here is the trial that finds us. And specifically when he says trials, the word that's used here, th these are trials that are meant to prove the quality or worth of someone or something through adversity. Maybe you've heard the phrase, a trial by fire. Kind of a litmus test. It's used to, to help us grow. These are the types of trials that James is talking about here. These are trials that can have a purifying quality in our lives that we may not realize until later. But when we look back later, if we're able to, we can see that these trials were a form of God's mercy on our lives. I look back the last couple of years, for me, were kind of one trial after another. And I sat there often asking God, why am I going through this? What do you possibly have to teach me? Just tell me. I'll get it, okay? God didn't do that for me. He didn't spell it out for me. And I don't know why I went through some of the trials that I went through. And, and you can probably be the same way if, if you're looking back at the trials you faced. You don't know why you faced those. But one of these days, I, I, I've got the faith that God's going to kind of show me what it was I went through and why. It's a sign of his mercy. These trials can be internal or external. They can be, uh, they, they can be a spiritual or a, a mental battle. or They can be a health battle on the outside that they get after us. But I think without asking you to raise your hands, if I ask how many of you have endured a trial that you didn't ask for, probably everybody's going to raise their hand. And if you can't, one's coming. <laughs> I can pretty much guarantee you that. It's going to happen. But these trials that he tells us, we get these for a reason. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Another word that can be used there is it produces endurance. That's what the trials that we're going to face do for us. Uh, th this word that's, that kind of describes this, it means that we, 
we'll see steadfastness or we'll see a staying power or a constancy that's going to come our way, a determination that only develops through adversity. Ultimately, what he wants you to know is that all of this is wrapped up in the umbrella of hope. All these trials that we face lead to hope. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5. He talks about the same thing, having joy in our trials. And Paul specifically says that our, our trials, our sufferings, produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And that hope gives us peace with God through Jesus. We think about this a little bit here. Because those trials ultimately are just a means to an end. The trials don't define us. They help refine us. They lead us to a, a wholeness, to a, a restoration, to a completeness with God. That's what James says in verse 4, that perseverance will finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Maturity in Christ Perfection, when we read that in the Bible, perfection means wholeness, completeness, being put back together. And here's kind of a fun little word play. That's also what peace means. We read about peace there in Romans chapter 5. It doesn't mean the absence or the removal of conflict. It means a restoration, a putting back together of our relationship with God so that when we face troubles, we know we've got God with us. We know that we're facing this at full strength. And that's the whole purpose. That's the whole purpose of trials. That's part of our purpose as a church. Paul writes in Ephesians that a purpose as a church is to put you all into the ministry, to mobilize you all so that we can build each other up and we can build up the world around us to completion, to maturity, he says, so that we're not easily thrown off. Our faith isn't easily wavered by whatever the world throws at us. That is so important. Again, if we're going to be that church that takes our community into the community and to get out into our world and make a difference and make an impact, that growth, that maturity, that completeness is so important so that we can put our roots down deep into God. We can put our roots down deep and we're not easily shaken or easily moved. Because our world is going to throw everything it can at us, especially the more times and, and more over that we lose influence, the world's going to keep throwing things at us. Trials make us stronger. They're not fun to endure. And trust me, like you, many times I've prayed, God, why in the world are you making me go through this? But there's something stronger on the other side of that. Here's our third command that we're given. We're called to put our faith into action. We keep sound doctrine, we endure hardships, but ultimately we're called to put our faith into action. James chapter 2, he writes a passage that has caused many people to scratch their heads at times. But here's what he says in James 2. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do you? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. 
It's a passage in some translations that will say faith without works is dead. And some people will, will read that and they'll say, yeah, but I thought we didn't need works to be saved. It says in Ephesians that we're saved by grace, not by works. That's correct. We aren't saved by anything that we do. We're saved by believing in the grace of God that he sent his son to die on the cross for us and that he rose from the dead for us. That's how we're saved. But James takes that a step further, and he says, if your faith doesn't cause you to go do works, it's a dead, and it's a useless faith, and it's not going to do anybody any good, and it's not going to help us fulfill our mission of going into the world. You might remember a few years ago, in June of 2016, a man walked into a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, nightclub called the Pulse Nightclub, and he opened fire and he killed 49 people and wounded 58 others. This was late on a Saturday night, and this nightclub was known because it was a hot spot and a gathering place for the LGBT community in Orlando. And almost everybody who was, was killed and wounded that night was a member of that LGBT community. And like so many people, because it's happened overnight pretty much on a Saturday, I learned about it sitting in church the next morning. I was looking on my phone before church started and started seeing, you know, the news breaks about this on Twitter. And, and so very quickly, this became a topic of conversation all throughout the church. It was, it was big national news, one of the worst mass shootings in, in our nation's history. And it was targeted at a, a very particular group of, of, of the population. And so like many other churches, we prayed that morning, you know, we condemned the attack, we, we you know, prayed that God would bring healing, and, 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 and we did all that. And so many churches across the country did the exact same thing at that moment in time. One organization took it a step further. It's an organization you probably know about. It's, it's Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, the, 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 the restaurant company, you know, the Lord's Chicken, you know, they, they took it a step further. This is an organization that very famously is run by a, a Christian family, and they've made their views and their stances known on, on the same-sex marriage issue very publicly. They're also very well known for being closed on Sundays to allow their employees the opportunity to go worship with their families. And yet on that Sunday morning, their employees showed up off the clock, they opened their doors, and restaurants all across the Orlando area started cranking out food. As many sandwiches as they could make, as many bags of fries as they could make, as many gallons of tea and lemonade as they could, they could make. And they took it to the people who were wounded, and they took it to the people who were standing in line to give blood to help those who were wounded. And they did this all day long until finally they said, I think we got enough. Thank you. And we read this, and, and, and we see this, and we see that this was, in a lot of ways, the church in motion through a chicken sandwich place. And they did this so much so that it actually got the attention of some people who have been very critical of Chick-fil-A in the past. In fact, one news anchor in Orlando who had been very publicly critically, critical of Chick-fil-A said, said this when she saw this. But wait, those people waiting to give blood to victims were, uh, or the, the, sorry, those people were waiting to give blood to victims that were primarily of the gay community. Doesn't Chick-fil-A hate those people? That's what we were being told. Turns out that while the founders may not approve of that choice of lifestyle, they approve of and believe in compassion. Who would have known? See, the message of James in this passage is so simple. It's that we are to put our faith into motion to help other people. 
We are to put our faith into action to show other people the love of Christ. Did anybody come to Jesus that day because they were given a free chicken sandwich? I don't know. I would guess probably not, but I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. They saw Jesus in motion. They saw him in action that day. They saw an organization being his hands and his feet that particular day. James doesn't make the claim that what we matter about Jesus is the most, or that what we know about Jesus is the most important thing. He doesn't make that claim. Instead, he tells us it's what we do with that knowledge about Jesus that makes the difference. In other words, you could, you could say it like this. The more we grow in Jesus, the more the heart of Jesus should be evident to everyone around us. The more we study about him and read about him, the more we learn about him, the more we come together as a church body on a Sunday or in a small group throughout the week, the more we do that, the more our heart should be transformed to become like his. That's what James is trying to tell us in this passage. Or maybe think of it like this. Faith without action fails to accomplish the true aim of faith. Faith needs to have action. So let's break this down just a little bit here. Where, where is your faith today? Where is your faith? See, the easy answer is to say your faith is in Jesus, right? If you're a member of a church, if you're a follower of Christ, yes, your faith is in Jesus. But that is a little too simplistic sometimes. Sometimes we've got to step back and look at what that means. Uh, David Platt is a, is a Christian author. He, he said it like this, most Christians in America want to follow a Jesus that doesn't require anything from them. Friends, we serve a Jesus who requires everything from us. He wants everything that we have to give him. That's why he said we need to take up our crosses daily and follow him. To be a Christian is to try to become like Jesus, try to be like him, like Paul said, be like me as I try to be like Christ. He called himself an imitator of Christ. That is what it means to follow him and to be like him. It means to live outside of ourselves and to pour ourselves into other people. Just like those very first disciples who left everything they had worked for and followed him just because he called them to. They left their boats on the shores of the lake. They left their tax booths. They left whatever business they were doing, whatever comfort they had. They left what they knew to follow this man. And he calls us to do the exact same thing, to become radically transformed in our hearts and our minds so that our hands and our feet become like Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So let me just say it like this. Let me, let me be very honest and, and blunt about this as a church. There is no way to live the gospel that doesn't lead to mission. And everything that Jesus told us to do starts with the command to go. To go and to do. Everything that he taught us is to go and to do. We are not saved because we do good works. We are saved so that we can work in the kingdom of God with Jesus. And it didn't just start with Jesus. This command, this idea existed back in the Old Testament times as well too. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 said, My word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it here. So let me kind of, let me kind of say this to you, okay? Unless your faith in Christ, unless your daily Bible reading, 
unless your regular church attendance, unless the way you serve the church, unless all of that ultimately leads to action in the kingdom. James says it's useless. It's useless. And that's what we need to cling to. That's what we need to remember, is that all of it is useless unless it points back to Jesus. I said this in the 8 o'clock service, and I'll say it again. One of the things I hear almost every time I preach, and probably people being nice, is they come up and say, man, that's a great sermon. I hear that most weeks. And it's not, it's not to say whether it actually was a great one or not. It's just sometimes people just being nice, you know. My grandma, can't hear a thing, would tell me, you did a great job up there preaching. She used to tell me that when I was in high school band. I could hear you. Like, no, you couldn't. But thank you. I appreciate it. But people will say, that's a great sermon. And I try my hardest to, to, to hear the heart. There's a part of me that wants to be a little snarky, and I don't do this. But part of me wants to say, was it? Was it a great sermon? Because I want to follow, follow that up by saying, what's it going to do to you? How's it going to change you? Because unless it changes the way you think, the way you feel, and ultimately the way you act, it wasn't a good sermon. This applies to me and Brad both. It doesn't matter how well we've crafted this and how well we deliver it. If it's not inspiring you and leading you to become more like Christ, folks, we didn't do our job. That's my challenge to you today. Don't just let what I say change you. Let the gospel change you. Let the word of God change you. You notice when you look at Jesus, every command he gave us involved us getting up and getting out and getting to work. He tells us to serve others, not to be served. He tells us to seek and save the lost. He tells us to go bring life to the full to other people, to go into the world and make disciples, to be his witnesses in our world. Those are the commands. We can't do any of that from the comfort of the church pew. We can't do any of that from the comfort of our recliner. So that's my challenge to you all today. Make it all about Jesus. Make it all about Jesus. Everything that you do, make it all about him. That's the message. That's the message for us as a church and for you all today. How do you do that? Simple. Stay true to the word. Get into the word and stay true to it. Be ready to endure some hardships. Grow your endurance and get missional. And if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't know how I can build my endurance because I'm not facing a hard time right now. Okay, start with number one and number three. Number two will follow. It'll follow. When you're doing what God wants you to do, the devil doesn't like that. He'll throw some stuff in your path. But folks, that's it. That's the message. We want to be a church that gets into our world to impact our world. That's where it starts. By staying true to what we were called to do from the very beginning. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for Jesus who who came to die for us, to show us the way to be that sacrificial lamb for us so that we could be restored to you. But God, too, for the commands that he gave us, the challenges that he gave us to become like him, knowing, knowing that that will require growth and that will require a commitment and dedication on our parts. So God, I pray for the hearts across the room today and across everybody watching online as well too, Lord, you would, you would lead every one of us. 
into our next step with you, into becoming more like you, so that as your church, Lord, we can grow in you. And God, as our church, as, as your church, we can do what you have in store for us. And we're so grateful, so grateful that you give us that challenge. And we pray in your name. Amen. We're going to step into our, our time of communion this morning. And as we do this, we just reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We reflect on what he did for us so that we could have that restoration with God. So as we take these emblems, if you didn't get a chance to grab them on your way in, there's tables around the room, you can grab one. We do this as a time to pause and reflect on him. With Easter season coming up here in a couple weeks, we remember what he did for us. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. Pray that, Lord, we would always have him on our minds, on our hearts, God, everything that he did for us. God, we're grateful for his blood that was sacrificed for our sins. We pray this in your name.